Welcome to yet another edition of Hunter Gathers, a special, our 50th program, coming to you live from Gonzo Fest with the Beat Poet Laureate of the United States, the organizer of Gonzo Fest. As always, here on the program, I'm Christopher Tidmore, joined by the main co-host of the program. It's Curtis Robinson. So you, you cue me up, and I've got to say, I guess we're here with a little bit of Gonzo Fest royalty. Uh, I will also point out to to listeners who have been listening to the series that uh, this is the Promise 50th episode when we started, uh, and this not to ignore our guests for another eight seconds, but I was told by one of my mentors that uh, don't judge yourself until you do 50 episodes because you will suck for the first 50, and now that, that it's 50, I guess somewhere in this episode... I'm not going to suck. <laughs> so I'm, I'm all for that. And so with us, um, Ron Whitehead, uh, his bio could be a book and uh, uh, probably has been a couple of times. So, uh, Ron, welcome to the podcast. And uh, I guess our first question is, how you doing here at Gonzo Fest? The bone man dances circles round the subterranean gloom, paints pink and blue and purple until he fills the room with the smell of roses and a pandemonium moon. Good morning, Christopher and Curtis. It's an honor to be here on your show here and at, that is the, start, at the start of the second day of the 10th and final Gonzo Fest. You know, uh, no one, no one, no one, uh, no one thinks you're lying. But no one believes you when you say it's the final Gonzo Fest. And why is that? Including your closest friends, I will have you know. You know, it's uh, a... <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> you know, I, the reason... No, let's see. Let's start that over. This is the 10th and final Gonzo Fest. And I finally, finally got my co-founder, Denny Humphrey, to, to agree with me. Um, and the reason... So many people have asked me, why is it? Why is it? Why you you can't stop? Well, I started my efforts in night to honor the life and work of Hunter S. Thompson in his hometown of Louisville, Kentucky in 1994 when my friend historian Douglas Brinkley brought a busload of students from Hofstra University on their way across the United States, they stopped in Louisville to visit the boyhood homes of Muhammad Ali and Hunter S. Thompson and to attend the 48-hour nonstop music and poetry Insomniacathon that my friend Ken Fielding and I were producing. It was our fourth Insomniacathon of 94. The first one was at New York University. They had asked me to produce a 48-hour Insomniacathon to kick off their week-long 50-year celebration of the Beat Generation. Hunter was there for that, and um, I watched him swallow a handful of pills people had given him at the end of the, his panel. He said, does anybody have any drugs? And uh, people, of course, from all over the packed house brought him drugs. He had two handfuls, and I was just thankful that I didn't have to be with him after uh, that. But So Doug arrived in Louisville. Jim Carroll, the author of The Basketball Diaries, was our featured uh, poet and writer for that October 94 Insomniacathon. And I was teaching at the University of Louisville, but doing all of my creative work, sleeping three hours a night, drinking 15 to 20 cups of coffee a day, and uh, producing events and publishing 
posters and books and albums and raising a family. But I was assigned um, host responsibilities for Doug because he was also releasing his On the Road with the Magic Bus book, which is about his previous cross-country trip with students, um, classroom on the road, going to national parks, visiting famous poets and writers and going to concerts. He was traveling with a PBS film crew and with my friend Chris Felver, who's a renowned documentary filmmaker and photographer. And um, so Doug and I had a couple of long talks during his stay in Louisville. And Doug said, it's long overdue that for Louisville to honor Hunter as they are doing for Muhammad Ali. Um, and Ali, of course, was one of Hunter's heroes and one of mine. My dad was a bare knuckle boxer. He was a coal miner and a farmer. I grew up on a farm in western Kentucky. Daddy worked at the mines for 43 years for Mr. Peabody. And I worked at the mines three, three times myself. And um, But so Doug said, I agreed. I said, Doug, I totally agree. Um, and Doug then said, I don't live here, Ron, but you do. And I, I think I said, you bastard. And, um, <laughs> and I said, okay, I'll do it. And this is the equivalent of when the political consultant comes and says, run for Senate. And say, well, <laughs> why don't I run the campaign and you be the candidate? Yeah. yeah. This comes in the situation where, you know, okay, I have this great idea. You're going to raise money. You're going to do all the work. You're going to come through. I, I'd love to say, I, I, and I have great affection for Doug Brinkley, as you know, but having worked in an office right down the hall from him, I've heard this spiel a few times. So you know what Genius, genius you know, is genius. they got to credit it. Yeah, you know what he's like. And... Um, and Doug but you had, did live here, and, and you, you agreed, so that was 94. That was 94. I did agree, and uh, Hunter and I had known of each other f for a time, and uh, but that really kicked things into motion. And so in August of 96, the 90s were insanely productive and busy, in February of 96, I was <clears throat> sucker punched at Freedom Hall by uh, a redneck parent after coaching my youngest son's uh, basketball game in a tournament that was being held there. And um, I had a, a broken nose. I think he had um, something in his hand when he hit me because I... I was raised to box and to fight, and I was in several fights growing up, and and um, I never had been hit like that. I had a broken nose, a broken cheek, a broken jaw, permanently dislocated jaw. I'd have two surgeries on my nose. I was teaching at UofL, doing all my creative work. I had migraine, headaches, a concussion. I did, I did not let it slow me down. I kept doing everything that I was doing, and including in August, Doug Brinkley and I 
produced a 48-hour nonstop music and poetry insomniacathon in New Orleans at the New Orleans Contemporary Arts Center, the Mermaid Lounge, and the Howlin' Wolf Club. It was one of the most spectacular insomniacathons, that one, the one at New York University, that I've ever produced, and I've a be a good town for it, right? Man, it was it was just fantastic. You know, you're going to take a night thing to where the night people live. Oh, my God. Yeah. And actually, it, it, it kept an impression. Other people tried to do it. They never were able to pull off what you were able to pull off, but it was, it made an impression on the poetry community in New Orleans, a huge amount. Man, man. I, I, we had we had so many, so many people for in for that, and... Um, members of the B generation who were still at it and contemporary authors and bands and musicians, the Wild Magnolias. After Mary Baraka uh, read and performed at the New Orleans Contemporary Arts Center, then you, you heard this drumming and here come on the stage the Wild Magnolias in their full uh, native... Uh, costumes, indigenous costumes, and they marched everybody through the streets of New Orleans to the Mermaid Lounge to begin the evening. Did they tell you what the, what, the, what the highest compliment you can give to a Mardi Gras Indian, which is what they call themselves, what the highest compliment uh, you could give to them is? What? You look pretty. It is the only time you can tell a six-foot, uh, uh, well-built man he looks that's, pretty and take great. it as a compliment. That's great. You know, that's the kind of compliment um, that I learned to accept uh, after hearing Muhammad Ali call himself pretty, you know, so many, so many times. It was natural for him. Yeah, that's right. It was absolutely right. natural. Yeah. So, so anyway, then that was 96, and... I had been out in 95. Uh, I received in 95. I received a death threat at the downtown post office in Louisville. I'd gone to pick up my mail. I had the largest PO box there because I got so much mail, and somebody had put in what looked like blood in huge letters above my PO box. Ron Whitehead will die August 20th, um, and <clears throat> so and then. Yeah, it had a date on it, and I, and so I, specific. I, I called the the police. Twenty uh, some police officers came out. The postal inspector came and told me he had just gotten back from Russia, and I was like, "What? What didn't?" I didn't say this, but what in the hell are you doing in Russia? The Kentucky <laughs> Postal Inspector. That was bizarre, and so that's there's a long story behind that, but. Uh, then I had a big exhibit at that same time at the main library where Virginia Thompson, who I became friends with at Hunter's request later, uh, had retired as head librarian. I had a big exhibit of, of the posters I had produced and their personal letters from lots of people, including uh, Allen Ginsberg and Hunter and, and others. And um, so there was several nights there were... 2, 3, 4 a.m., car door slamming, phone calls. I picked it up, hello, nobody. Then the other end clicked, nobody answered. So I rented a car and took my family uh, the day before August 20th, at the end of August, on a two-week, 5,000-mile Wild West vacation road trip, <laughs> hardcore road trip. And our first stop was at, to Owl Farm. And uh, so one thing led to another, and then I made the decision. I talked with Hunter, 
and I talked with Doug about producing the official Hunter S. Thompson tribute in December um, of 1996. And so leading up to the tribute, I told Hunter right off the bat, I said, I want you to be honored and welcome back in Louisville after you were run out um, as a high school senior. And I want amends to be made, and I'm going to do all I can to make sure that happens. And so Hunter was skeptical, but and rightfully so. But, I mean, unless you work with me, you really don't know that I believe firmly that the impossible is possible if, if you have the vision for it. So, so, I, so I asked Hunter... We we had he called me in tonight, uh, two, three, four, five, six a.m. And Johnny Depp during this period of several months when he was staying in Hunter's basement, studying him and hanging out with him for to play him in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas the movie, um, and Layla Nabusi was kept keeping me up to date on what was going on with that with her search for a director and. The, work on the script and my friend Lawrence Furlongetti was letting me know about his work kind of overseeing the script down he would go down to Zotrope Studios down the hill from 261 Columbus Avenue North Beach San Francisco City Lights Books and so Hunter and I worked out who to invite and what the event was going to shape into and um so we did it hand in hand, really, and Doug helped out and lining people up. Um, and so I, I ended up on December the 12th, earlier that week, I brought in the entire crew and put them up at the Brown Hotel. I put Hunter up in the penthouse. He wanted to stay at the Brown. And let's, let me ask you a question about that, because for those that don't know Louisville, they don't know the, the significance of the Brown Hotel as a place, as a literary place, as a place of gathering, but also for a, essentially a poor kid from Kentucky or even somebody from Louisville who grew up not far. The Brown Hotel being in the penthouse suite would have been You've the epitome. Arrived. You've, You've arrived. You have arrived. Explain what the Brown Hotel well, is. Well, I mean, historically, it's it was the hotel. It was the place. Anybody who was and all the famous people stayed there, and all the artists, the musicians, the uh, the great ones stayed there, and um, and so that's where you know you you're going to make amends for me, then uh, you know I want to be treated like the cream of the crop. He didn't say that, but that's what he wanted, and that's what I made sure that happened. And so I got the University of Louisville, where I was teaching, to come on board. And agreed to be to produce the event to foot the bill, if I produced because I had already established um, credentials with bringing in Diane DePrima, Alan Kinsberg, Mary Baraka, Gregory Corso, and doing a lot of work publishing and creating an international reading series there and. So I moved forward knowing that I had the financial backing, and I set everything up. Hunter wanted the event to happen at Memorial Auditorium, which is up 4th Street, which is holds 2,000, 2,500 
people, red velvet seats. It, in Hunter's Day, it was where like the, the top acts performed. It was a beautiful hall. And um, so I, I got that hall. And then we started booking people. For the event, I brought in Hunter, his mom, Virginia, his son, Juan, Johnny Depp, Warren Sivan, Roxanne Pulitzer, Harvey Sloan, former mayor of Louisville, um, David Amram, now 92, still going hard. World and the man who does our opening music, of course. Our opening music is from World. David Amram. I mean, our, our opening music is from David Amram. I, th- I, I think it's the old Kentucky home version that he has. And I, I, he, uh, uh, Christopher, you'll be glad to know he gave permission to use that while on Lake Pontchartrain. Oh, that, that, was, that was very good to yeah. know. And, and, and uh, as, a, as another hunting crony decided to actually swim across that lake. For those that wonder what the background noise is, of course, we are at Gonzo Fest Live with the founder and uh, Grand Poobah and all-around intellectual father of it, who's about to explain how it all came together. So, so then... Um... One week before the event, I, I had about 150 students uh, who had come on board. I had a large body of students who volunteered to help me produce events, and I had assigned uh, lead lead people for different categories, and then they had teams working with them. and. Um, the young man who was my liaison with the university called me and said, Ron, I got some bad news. The university just, the vice president, somebody, just let me know that because of what they consider to be adverse publicity, because of the feature articles that were being written and published in the Courier Journal, Kentucky's main newspaper, the Lexington Herald Leader, um, and other statewide, regional, and national newspapers which talk about Hunter's drug and alcohol abuse that the university was withdrawing their financial support because they were afraid that their donors would quit giving money. This was a university-sponsored event, and they pulled out two weeks before one, the... They pulled out one week before, and so, um, so I was... That was a, the first of two big bombshells, and and so I I was I didn't know what the hell to do, and should I go ahead? Should I cancel this thing? I was so far in um, with getting people to come, agree to come, and setting venues up getting everything in place and ready. And so I, I called Doug Brinkley, and I told him what the situation was. Not just asking for advice. I was looking for a shoulder to lean on. And and I was hoping that since University of New Orleans had footed the bill for the 96 since the August Insomnia Hackathon we had produced, that he might have an idea as far as sponsorship for this event, but he didn't. And he's, he finally said, we had, we talked for a while. He said, Ron, you've got everything in place. You've got to do this. You will show to the world that you can do anything if you go ahead and produce this event. 
And so I sucked it up. And well, that kind of goes back to you live here. And it, part of me wanted to say, tell Doug to flake, take a fly and fuck it to moon. And, and, and so because I was disappointed that he didn't offer some financial support, but, but I, I also, it wasn't his responsibility. You know, he had uh, helped me line up some things, and uh, he was always helpful. But um, so I'm the reason I felt... You know, I I said you know I like to tell him take a fly and fuck at the moon because I was just like I was just like de- I was desperate. You know, what the hell do I do? Where in the hell am I going to go and get all this money now to pay for everybody's airfare, the hotel, the seven fleet of seven Lincoln Continentals, the two limousines I booked, and so I started contacting friends and. I just pieced it all together, and I got all the backing, finally, like the day before. I finally put it all together, and so that then it was time for the event. So I had that going on while producing the event, and if you've ever produced an event, as I know both of you have, you know that you're working nonstop around the clock for days and nights ahead of time, and some people might think there's a whole lot of stress involved, and you could call it that, but it's just um, it's walking a tight rope of of creativity. And you don't so ever turn off. You be, you are yeah. turned on. The adrenaline is pumping. You're fine tuned, and all your senses are heightened. And so there's this level of creative excitement about it it's like this gonzo fest man i mean being on stage i've told people before you know when my time comes to die i'd like to be struck by the biggest bolt of lightning to ever hit planet earth and just my ass be vaporized um and if that can't happen then i'd like to die on stage or having sex or having sex on stage you know something one or all of the above maybe simultaneously and so, so, so anyway, the uh, I was determined, and my buddy Kent Fielding um, said, he said yesterday during our panel here on the first day of Gonzo Fest, when this story came up, because he's publishing a book of interviews on people who, by interviews he's done already with people who attended the 96 tribute or performed or uh, were volunteers and he's got some amazing stories there but he said when I he asked me about that and I shared that story in my talk with Doug and he said Ron I know that you would have gone ahead and done the event you know whether no matter what Doug said and, and Ken knows me real well and I would have because I've been in other situations um tough tough ass situations and by god once i commit to something i follow through with it and so i followed through with that and and it was the most amazing four hour event i have ever produced and i produced a couple of thousand events and festivals uh, throughout europe and the, across the united states over the past few decades and so i so but at the end of it and it was standing room only um 
he couldn't move in a place and the energy was sky high like it is here at Gonzo Fest at this 10th and final Gonzo Fest everybody just uplifted and inspired and excited about it all and um, so at the end though um, and I want to say something before I and after I say this about the end about Hunter's mom Virginia who and and Hunter's nervousness but um at the end, the young man I had put in charge of the money, uh, to handle the money, because I can't stand dealing with the damn money. And uh, I have a couple young ladies handling the money here for Gonzo Fest. And I don't like technical shit, and I don't like money. I don't like financial crap. I just like the creative work. That's it. I do everything I do for the love of it. But so the young man comes backstage and says, Ron... I got some bad news. So this is the second part of that bad news. After the week before, Duovell saying they weren't going to foot the bill. Um, he said, we made $50,000. And I said, but shit, you know, that sounds good. And he said, but the event cost 100000 And so, so I'm like, uh, Well, you know numbers well enough uh, to do that, uh, uh, don't that, you? Those are rounded off figures, but that was, that's, I just give me the rounded off totals. I don't need to deal with the specifics. And so I was devastated. I did not know what the hell I was going to do. How, you know, of the couple thousand events I produced, my goal is always to break even. If I make a little money, I put it back into the next publication, the next event, whatever's going on. And um, half dozen I've lost uh, some money on. I, I lost a chunk at the New York University event for for different reasons, um, but nothing like this before. And so I didn't know how I was going to what I was going to do. So the after party was at Hunter's penthouse at the Brown, and everybody. Of course, Hunter was so relieved, excited, elated, and wanted me and to... If, and if I could jump back just right for a ahead. second. Go right ahead. Because that four hours on stage, we've kind of glossed over. It went, what, that Man. night was beyond remarkable. You Man. had Johnny Depp on, on the, uh, the wave speech. You had so many other things. Man. But the most... And I, I asked Warren to start the show. with. So the, the house lights came down, and I said, Warren, we're going to have the spotlight on you. I want you out center front and center of the stage and with your guitar and perform lawyers guns and money and man it's just electric it was fantastic and i followed warren sivon since his first album i love his work so it was a great honor for me to get to meet and work with him personally a super nice guy you know i felt really bad for him because he already knew he had cancer at that time and he and hunter were having some private conversations going over some things but he was so um they, they were such good friends and uh, we had a grand piano, so later, later he played Werewolves of London. And uh, it tears me up to, uh, to think about it. Um, but he, he, you know, he thanked Hunter for making him a rich man uh, with that song. So I, for, for inspiring him for Werewolves of London. So... It was just a fantastic event. And the, of course, the last part 
the second to last part of the event was all because of you, the reconciliation with well, Hunter's son Juan. Well, and, yes. so so there's been a, it's been interesting. To, a lot of people have talked about that here because one of the things we're doing, well, part of the Gonzo Fest this year is looking back at the 96 uh, yeah. uh, homecoming. Uh, but I don't think I even really put it together. Do you consider that the first Gonzo Fest? Yes. Yeah. I, Kent reminded me that what Hunter had come to Louisville to Kentucky Center for the Arts in 92, and Kent and I just started working together. And uh, so we went to that event, and, and Kent reminded me, he said, hey, it was at that event you said, I'm going to produce a Hunter tribute. And I'd forgotten all about saying that, but I had um, – I had just had a long conversation with the Kentucky mountain poet, James Steele, and I was probably, I don't know. I, every time I think about that event, I, you know, I think about Hunter, of course, and he was late, and there was a lot of talk about that, and he was the star of the show. But, but I just I thoroughly enjoyed the poetry of James Steele, and we had a long conversation. So, But anyway, the, the 96 tribute was the first Gonzo Fest, really. Um, and after that event, I, I preached the gospel like the old preachers on the street corners in the South and other places, too, um, and preaching to whoever's walking by and not many people listening. I did that in Louisville in my own way, trying to convince people to come on now. Y'all join forces with me and let's honor one of the great writers of the 20th century, Hunter S. Thompson, here in his hometown. And let me let me ask you about that, yes. because um, that is something we've confronted on a lot of the podcasts with a lot of friends of yours, a lot of people that knew Hunter. The idea of Kentucky embracing Hunter. You've probably done more than any single individual, and probably more than about 50 individuals, to get Kentucky behind him. You introduced him into the Writers' Hall of Fame here. You, you, were, you did all this... Why was it, what was Hunter, how is the embrace of Louisville in, uh, in specific and Kentucky in general as Hunter as a native son? Because I'm still astonished to this day. I don't know how it's physically possible, but the number of people who say, I love Hunter S. Thompson, I, I love the Vegas book, I love this, this, who don't really realize he is, the, how instrumental, how endemic Kentucky was to his worldview. Who some of them don't even realize is from Kentucky, really. I mean, that's uh, that's right. That's a good point. And I, I have wherever I go, I travel a lot around the world, and people always ask me when they hear that I'm from Kentucky about the first two people they ask me about are Muhammad Ali and Hunter S. Thompson. And then there are others after that, of course. And and I've done research on the all, and I've written about all the amazing original voices, individuals from Kentucky who have changed the course of American poetry, writing, music, culture, and a Kentucky, and I've talked about Kentucky's a place where diamonds are created uh, because of the intense pressure from all sides, and, um, and so not enough has been written or said about Hunter's early years, those formative years. Um, I, in Kentucky, I know what it's like 
to grow up here as I did. Even though I grew up on a farm, uh, I came to Louisville whenever possible uh, to experience the big city. Hunter grew up in the Highlands where I had an apartment and a writing studio and home base for uh, years and years um, in the same area, in Hunter's stomping ground. But, um, but there's still... I mean, look, when you consider that the two senators, U.S. senators from Kentucky, are Mitch McConnell, evil incarnate, and Ron Rand Paul, um, who's cra- just insane, um, he's a nut. Um, and do you understand that the depth of ignorance that we deal here with here and so many ignorant people are good people i've grew up with them some are friends of mine and i don't hold their ignorance against them and and one of our problems in in our society and culture today is that the discourse has ended and i believe in friendship and i believe that uh in disagreeing yet remaining friends having debating and talking about any damn thing we choose to talk about and having our differences but shaking hands at the end hugging each other and i got friends from all walks of life but there's a there's a just a whole there's a wealth of dumb asses in kentucky but there are all over the united states and the world um and when I include myself in the dumbass category, I don't exclude anybody from that. Um, so I, it's a Hunter attempted to just get the hell out of Dodge, considering the way he was treated here and what had went down his senior year. I don't blame him one bit, but he loved Kentucky. And Hunter and I, Hunter's one of those people. Hunter is a. You know, I called, I wrote a piece after he shot himself. Hunter Shaman Thompson, Thompson is dead. And um, and I, I did some work for a few years with Ralph Steadman. He sent me when we, for, he sent me a 40 or 50 images of Hunter when we were uh, creating the banner, the big banner of Hunter, which we put up on Barstown Road on the side of Bristol Bar and Grill. And, and um, it, and the banner is incredible because now it wasn't originally that, but it has an addition of a name on it, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. And I asked, I asked. Uh, that was in 2014 Gonzo Fest when I convinced the uh, Gonzo Fest team to have six days and nights, 17 venues of shows for Gonzo Fest that year. And I asked the mayor to rename the city of Louisville uh, to, I said, why in the hell do we want to name ourselves after some French king? And uh, let's rename this town Hunter's Gonzoville. I told the mayor that. (laughs) And he, if I got at the, at the event, he, uh, at the unveiling, he, he whipped out a proclamation, an official proclamation, you know, hereby, therefore, and forevermore, um, for six days during Gonzo Fest, I have officially renamed Louisville Hunters Gonzoville. And I told that I knew that ahead of time, so I told Ralph 
Stedman and asked him to uh, paint that so we could add that to the banner, which we did. And so 22,000 people, somebody found out, somebody on the production team found out, drive by that banner and see it every day. So... I I, the re, I don't I, remember where we were in this conversation. Well, so. we're, we're, we're talking, <laughs> but I, I think it raises an interesting point because Louisville doesn't get enough credit as the, the sort of the clay that formed the mind of Hunter S. Thompson. And I, I, let me phrase it this way: you know, we we talked we talked to Tara Johnson about this, but it's the idea that um, you've got a French-founded city that's in the South is the edge of the South, but not quite the South, but not quite not the South. I come from New Orleans, which heavily resembles that exact description. Yep. And it's, it's, it's sort of, you've got the elements of it, but you also have the ability to look back on it, what you like, what you don't like, without rejecting all of it, which to me, I don't know, you, <laughs> Curtis, you want one of our closest friends, but that kind of explains Hunter, if, if I had to say, that kind of contradiction yes. which creates a synthesis. Well, it's true. It's, it's, it's right. growing up in the Bible Belt, but also growing up in the Bible Belt where, where your industries are horses and whiskey. It's, yep. it's, 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 it's a contradiction. It. Yeah. A total contradiction, this state is. Everything about it. And... And so you can see how Kentucky births original, those rare gems, those rare diamonds, those original voices uh, like Abraham Lincoln and Hunter S. Thompson and Bill Monroe and Loretta Lynn and... And Johnny Depp. And Johnny Depp. <laughs> Johnny and I were both born in the same town, Owensboro, Kentucky, in western Kentucky, and where the last legal public hanging was held in, I think, 1925. I I wrote about I did the research and wrote about it in uh, one of my books, the Beaver Dam Rock and Chair Marathon. But um, so Kentucky was, I, I love history, and I, I majored in hist- um, English, and I had a history major and a philosophy minor in, in college. And um, But I love the Civil War, and I've read so many books about it, and Kentucky was a conflicted state. We were... We were on the Mason-Dixon line right in between. We were in between everything, and we were the original frontier. Um, And I've read all about uh, Daniel Boone and the early explorations westward by the European settlers, and and Kentucky was the spot. And so... So we were looking back, the 10th yeah. and final uh, Gonzo yes. Fest. Yeah, let's get back on track. Yeah, uh, because uh, we, we do have yeah, to... Yeah, I got to get going <laughs> yeah. here. So the 10th and final Gonzo Fest, um, I, I guess the best way of saying this, if this is the final Gonzo Fest, then what is the epitaph of these great gatherings about Hunter S. Thompson? Um, what would you say about that? And I have one other question about the beat poets, but go ahead. Uh, what would you say is the epitaph of this? Well, I don't think there is. I, I, I haven't written an epitaph for the Gonzo Fest yet. I, this is yet. This, the 96th tribute was, like you suggested, the first Gonzo Fest. These 10 years of Gonzo Fest uh, I produced with Denny Humphrey um, 
and an incredible production team would be the second phase. And by God, it's, it's time for a third phase. And I hope the city of Louisville will have enough sense to come on board. And it may take somebody who is crazy as nine loons. And that's how Hunter described me. And I, I need to say this. I, Hunter said, Hunter knew that I lost 50 grand on that 96 tribute. And he told me, he said, look, as soon as Wayne's film documentary he's doing on me sales, I'll write you a check out and, and pay that. And, I said, thanks for the thought, Hunter. I appreciate that. And uh, But then two years later, in 98, uh, I got a call from a young publisher in New York publishing my book, The Beaver Dam Rockin' Chair Marathon. He said, Ron, are you sitting down? And I said, no, but I guess I should be. And, I, and he said, I want to read you something. I just got a letter. And it said, I have long admired Ron Whitehead. He is crazy as nine loons, and his poetry is a dazzling mix of folk wisdom and pure mathematics. Hunter S. Thompson, and he put the date, signed it, signed the date, 98. I forget the exact date. That's now in the University of Louisville, Rare Books and Archives, where my uh, uh, the biggest collection of my work is held. And so people can say whatever they want uh, that was hunter's way of of thanking me and man i just like how many poets did hunter praise it's like shit <laughs> that tears, that tears not many not many at day. all that's right and, and this is what i find really interesting on in, in mine because you are uh, not only the great advocate, but you are the great embodiment of the beat poets. You are the beat poet laureate. And so my question, Ron Whitehead, is Hunter had a, and, and, and Curtis and I have talked about this, sort of a, a love-hate relationship or a hate-hate-love relationship with the idea of the beat poets. He didn't, as you often told me, Curtis, he didn't like the beats at some level. Well, not the beats. I, did, I know he didn't like hippies. The, beat, like, the beats, it depends on which beats you're talking about. Yeah. If you're talking about uh, uh, Kerouac and Cassidy, that was one thing, but uh, uh, he was not particularly particularly early on when he was in San Francisco. He wasn't all that enamored of the lifestyles or or, or the, the the work of, of that. Uh, and and he, I get, he came around. He came around particularly to like Ginsburg and Burroughs, uh, well, certainly Burroughs. And the reason I get that is because I, I've always had taken that with a with a grain of salt. Because if you read Hunter. Even yeah. though he's writing in prose form, it, yeah. frankly, he's the last or one of the great beat poets. Yeah. I mean, it's that, really... It, yes, this, yeah. is, this is a great point. Yeah. I really appreciate you bringing it up. And I had a talk, a long talk with Hunter about this. And um, we, we talked about his relations with the beats and his feelings and... And I was out getting him to sign copies of the Publishing Heaven poster. He was a crook. I published with Ken. I published three Publishing Heaven posters of pieces by Hunter. And uh, he was a crook. The Nixon obituary was one of them. And so... And I, I was on my way out to visit Getty and have dinner with him at City Lights the next day. I was driving to tonight from Al Farm on. And um, so that's what prompted the conversation and this particular conversation. And 
So he said, I, I want to sign one of these posters for Lawrence. And he was, he talked about what an inspiration Furlan Getty was to him. And the, speaking of Burroughs, Hunter said, I thought I was a good shot until I went shooting with Bill. And if you know the history of Bill Burroughs, do you... Yeah. Do you Someone's know done. that what that, what Hunter's saying <laughs> yeah. there yes. Yes. <laughs> about yes. when he he was playing William Tell with his wife in Mexico and shot her in the f- middle of head, forehead and killed her, um, and you know that was an accident, um, and he got off. Um, Hunter didn't exactly think it was an accident, so, but. Um, but Hunter, and Hunter also signed a, a poster to Sergeant Shriver. Those are two posters he put uh, private messages on. That he was a crook. He said Shriver was the only per- public personality to praise my Nixon obituary, and uh, everybody else trashed it. And so I w- please send this to him. And I don't remember how I got his address. Shriver's address, but I did, and I sent it to him. I never heard. I'd not remember and hearing back from him. But Furlan Getty really loved Hunter's, uh, what he wrote on his poster, and he had good things to say about Hunter. And, and, and I know that Hunter publicly had conflicting um, words to say about the beat generation and and uh, you know I know the backstory I work with a, a new uh, pretty much all of them except well, Jack Kerouac and Neil Cassidy died a little too early 68 and 69 for me to get to meet them but I did I stood at Jack Kerouac's grave with as did Kent uh, with Jan Kerouac uh, rode up from New York to uh, Lowell and, um, and I shared the stage with uh, John Cassidy and and with um, <clears throat> Carolyn uh, John in New York and Carolyn Cassidy in London. I've co-produced the London International Poetry and Song Festival with Richard Deacon, um, who's a London playwright, and uh, she's a, an awesome lady, but. Hunter had he he considered himself to be um, a direct tributary of, as I do, of the beat generation of that spirit of original thinkers like Furlan Getty, first ever paperback bookstore in the United States, City Lights Books, 261 Columbus Avenue, North Beach, founded in 1953, um, and. Right across the street from the Beat Museum, actually. That's exactly <laughs> right. Caddy Corner to the Beat Museum. Uh, also, Jack Kerouac Alley from one of the finest bars. The Suvios, that's right. I that's mean, it is historic. You get the window seat there, life is good. That's right. That's right. I agree. So, um, but I have mixed feelings about the Beats uh, myself and... Um, and the Beats, <laughs> David Amram, you know, he's like... We did an album together... Two years ago, and um, 
Never Too Many Sunsets was the title of the album. And we've done a lot of touring and shows in the United States and Europe. And and I've had lots of private conversations with him. And I've and I've heard the public, uh, what he said publicly, too. And the whole concept of the Beat Generation is uh, something that was created and uh, like like Hunter's life, I think we're just at the beginning. Like other great writers, like James Joyce, Virginia Woolf, uh, William Blake, great poet, and of an appreciation and generations of studies of the life and work of Louisville native son Hunter S. Thompson. Um, we're in the early days, and I'm honored to be to play a role, a part in this beginning that's the way i look at it all i can't say anything better than as 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 the epitaph of the 10th gonzo fest and hopefully not the last though if you'll politely disagree well yes hopefully uh not the last but we'll, we'll see it again I've never seen an honorable man with less credibility on something than you. I told someone yesterday that since since Nixon left the White House, no one has less credibility on a public comment than you saying there's going to be no more Gonzo Fest. But <laughs> but I'll, I'll I'll leave it at that. No, nope, we're going to continue you, with our Gonzo Fest interview. You jackass! <laughs> Thank you guys. Thank you guys. Continue with our Gonzo Fest interviews in our next episode. All right.